Hello and welcome to everybody. This is Hear Her Sports, the female athlete podcast, and I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. Today's guest is Jackie McWilliams. Jackie is the first African-American female ever to hold a position of commissioner of the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association, the CIAA. Jackie spent nine years at the NCAA managing those championships, including serving as director of the Division I Women's Basketball Tournament from 2006 to 2009 and the Division I Men's Basketball Tournament from 2007 to 2012. She was a former student athlete at Hampton University, where she was a member of the 1988 NCAA Division II Women's Basketball Championship team and the 1987 and 1990 CIAA Volleyball Championship teams. Jackie earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Hampton University and a Master's degree in Sports Management and Administration from Temple University. In our conversation, Jackie talks about her work on a range of boards and committees, supporting women in sports leadership and diversity and equity in college sports. Find out more about Jackie and her work in the show notes at hearhersports.com. But for now, let's get on to the show. Welcome, Jackie. I am so glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. I so appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here speaking to you today. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. And I want to start out right with a bang that you have a big event coming up with the men's and women's CIAA 75th anniversary basketball tournament, which will be held from February 25th to 26th at Bojangle Stadium and from February 27th to 29th at the Spectrum Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. Could you talk about why this is so important maybe what you have planned, and also how do women fit into the celebration and the history? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I'm so excited and somewhat overwhelmed by the opportunity to lead this conference in 75 years of this basketball history. You know, we're a 108-year-old conference, and I actually came to the conference after the 100th anniversary. So I can't imagine what it was feeling like for those who were involved in that planning. But for 75 years of basketball, where this tournament has been a staple across the country and in our community, and where some of the greatest of the greats have come through, and have been great leaders in this country is just incredible. You know, our team has been working a lot on this event since last year. You know, once we finished the event, we got 365 days to plan. And because it's 75 years of the men's basketball tournament, we didn't want it to stop. What I said was important that we include our women in the 75 years of celebrating basketball and what has happened in 75 years. You know, it's 46 years of the women's tournament, 75 years of the men's tournament. But between there, you know, throughout that history, there's been a lot that has taken place where women have grown in the game. They have won national championships. Men have won national championships. Legends have come through, NBA players. So it's been an incredible mark for CIAA to celebrate this in our 15th year in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they have been gracious and have really opened up new opportunity and doors for CIAA to expand our footprint for this tournament. We're now 150,000 plus people coming to this event, not just coming to the game, but to be a part of something that is extremely excellent and that has been extremely important to the community of our member institutions. So we're looking forward to celebrating, you know, the brand of CIAA, the history of the CIAA, the tour of the CIAA, and most important to me is our student athletes who will get to be a part of something great. And if you're a senior and finishing up your season at this tournament, what a remarkable way to end it in 75 years of celebration. Maybe I should have you introduce the CIAA and sort of the focus of the division. 
Yeah, so, you know, the CIAA was founded in 1946 in Washington, D.C. We're actually incorporated there. Most of our schools are in the footprint of North Carolina. We have eight schools here. We have a school in South Carolina, two in Virginia, one in Maryland, and one in Pennsylvania. And what's pretty cool about the CIAA is, even though it extends to the South, that it is a family unit. You know, it's, it's fun to be a part of an organization where you know, even at our tournament of all of our championships, you will see our student athletes, they compete hard. It's definitely competition, even amongst our board members. How many rings do you have? How many championships that you have? But at the end of the day, you'll see a community come together to really celebrate the essence of who we are as people, culturally in our communities, but also at our institutions and, and graduating students. And so CIAA in the footprint here with the John B. McClendon, you know, the Big House Gaines, the Jeanette Lees, the Dr. Johnson and the Ingrid Wicker, who's the athletic director at North Carolina Central. You've seen a lot of people come through this conference and now leading in different spaces of college athletics, which it makes me really proud to be able to come back and know that some of them were my mentors. Some of them I watched from a distance. I'm working very closely with a lot of them to help influence the world of college athletics, specifically in historically black colleges and universities where this conference started, was the first in the country to start because players didn't have any place to go. And so, you know, we're not just celebrating 75 years, we're celebrating 108 years of where this conference provided opportunities for education and athletics. We have grandparents of their grandchildren of the great-grandchildren wow. that have been coming to this tournament for over 50-something years, which is incredible. So we always try to identify and celebrate those members who have been coming over 50 years and then their families. In our Hall of Fame this year, which is pretty exciting, all of the recipients will be basketball, former basketball players. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, so we focus on like Virginia Unions. They're the first women's team to win the NCAA National Championship as an HBCU and celebrating those women and bringing them back. Barvinia Wooten was a member of that team and she coached at Virginia Union. But even so more, when the Division II NCAA celebrated 40 years, we put her up to represent our conference because of her excellence as not just as a coach, but as a person who has contributed to the society um, to represent the CIAA. And Tim Newsom, who went to Winston-Salem and played for the Dallas Cowboys. So, you know, for the, the tournament, you know, the Hall of Fame is always a big deal for us. And so to bring back some of these players that have, you know, made tremendous impact in the game, I think is kind of the highlight of our week on that Friday morning. And then celebrating them and pinning them. I get to pin them um, at the game during nice. that Friday evening semifinal session. And so that's fun as well. And they're just so appreciative. I make that first call to them after the board approves and endorses them to be in the Hall of Fame. And so going into the holidays, it's like a gift, you know, to be able to call them and tell them how thankful I am to be able to have the opportunity to call them and welcome them into the CIAA Hall of Fame. And we're looking forward to them coming so that we can celebrate celebrate all their accomplishments and what they've done to help influence the game of basketball for the CIAA. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, are you going to be able to take part in any of the celebrations? Or oh, yeah. So okay, okay, good. Yeah, I'm running around like a chicken the whole time. <laughs> I, You know, it's funny because people are like, do you watch the games? I really would like to watch the games. I do carry my phone since we have the CIAA Sports Network, so I'm able to watch games on my iPad and on my phone. 
and I'll watch every game, you know, as much as I can. The very last game of every night I always watch, no matter where I am. So when I do get to the venue outside of interviews and having to go speak to sponsors and go to board member suites and you name it, I try to sit down for a period of time and just enjoy the games as well. So it's difficult, but I get it done. I bet. And, you know, I'm sure that organizing the 75th anniversary isn't the only thing you're involved with right now. So what else is really important in your role as commissioner? Wow, that's uh, that's loaded because I've been working on my schedule since I got back to make sure that I've got all these things in line. So I'm currently the president for women leaders in college sports. So that is, you know, being a part of that and leading conference calls. We have a conference call every month. We have our board meeting coming up. So being prepared to lead this amazing organization with Patty Phillips, the executive director. That's quite humbling for me as well. I I continue to try to wrap my head around being part of this history of women who have led this organization for over 40 years. And to go into the next decade leading it is an incredible opportunity that never in a lifetime I thought would ever happen. And so I am blessed to have been put in the position and my daughter watched the whole torch handover at the Women Leaders Conference this year. Yeah, so that was a blessing. I'm also on the NCAA Board of Governor's Ad Hoc Committee for Name, Image, and Likeness. That was pretty loaded as well. It hasn't been that time-consuming, but it does take time to make sure you're staying up on all what legislation, what's happening across the country to prepare for the calls, because on those calls you have significant leaders, whether they're presidents or commissioners or athletic directors from Power Five institutions serving on this committee, and everyone is, they're bright and they're ready, and, you know, I think we all depend on each other to make sure that we're prepared to have the discussions that we have. And so we've had a lot of calls since I've been on that committee. And so trying to manage that as well. Also with our Collegiate Commissioners Association Division Two, we have monthly calls with that. So staying connected with my 23 colleagues on managing the Division Two platform within our conferences and then, you know, the execution of the initiatives and keeping my team abreast of that is always, um, <laughs> it's always a highlight as well. If I can't make the meeting, I have a senior associate attend conference calls if I have conflicts. I'm also on the NCAA Gender Equity Committee. I just got off of another committee that deals with diversity and inclusion. Uh, My term ran out last summer, I believe, but I'm still on the Gender Equity Committee and working closely with the other committees to ensure, you know, that all the things that the NCAA has talked about for women and people of color, that we are tracking on those initiatives that we have moved forward to the Board of Governors for approval. So those are some things there outside of being on a local sorority here, um, the Lynx or a national sorority, the Lynx organization, but the Crown Jewels organization here in Charlotte. I'm very active with them. We're actually leading human trafficking. Our chapter, we're working with Samaritan's Feet, which is also a partner of the CIAA. Our staff goes to their warehouse and we volunteer and we take student athletes there when they're in town and coaches to volunteer in the warehouse. I'm on their board as well. And so the community aspect is extremely important to me in trying to figure out how to prioritize all of that outside of being a mother. And so my daughter's playing volleyball. Uh, She's a straight A student. She wants to run track. And so just trying to manage, honestly, Elizabeth, trying to still engage in the work of the CIAA, get outside in the college community locally and nationally, but also do things in the community that will make impact and influence the people around that I work around every day. 
it sounds like you're surrounding yourself with just just absolutely amazing people. I have a remarkable team. It's like if you're hired as a coach and you go in and you, you just want to make all the changes in your first year. It doesn't happen that quickly. I mean, I've been here... This is my eighth tournament in my eighth season. And I can tell you probably in the last three years, I have felt more stability with my team and with the board. We've made a lot of hard decisions since I've been here. I mean, a lot of hard decisions from canceling a football championship to moving our tournament through a bid process to moving our apparel deals, a television deal, you know, dealing with the LGBT House Bill 2 issue in North Carolina, moving championships out of the state. I mean, it's been, I'm like, bring it on. What else is there? You know? And so I feel like we're in a nice, as I tell my team, let's not talk about the dysfunction that we've dealt with. Let's talk about how functional we are and how we've been able to navigate in the most difficult times in college athletics for CIAA, where we've been scrutinized and still have been able to execute excellent championships for the student athletes that we get to manage every day. And so when you ask us what our why is, they will tell you to make sure that our student athletes in this conference has an experience because they may never get to a national championship. So how do we make them feel like the CIAA is a national championship, which is a good and a bad, because a lot of times they play so hard in our conference that they're exhausted when they get to the playoffs. And so we're trying to help our membership balance that as well. But it's a big deal to win a conference championship. I'm able to do all the things that I do because I have a great team. I want to get to your leadership style because you seem like a really excellent leader. But I first want to ask you about the Gender Equity Committee. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, it is part of the committee structure of the NCAA where they select or nominate, you're nominated and selected to be on this committee that has division one, two, three representation. It has commissioners, uh, senior women administrators, a faculty athletic rep. It can have a president on it. And so there's representation to make sure that we know what the current issues are that are happening in college athletics and the impact that it has on women in athletics. And so the Gender Equity Committee was charged to review the equity, I guess, plan for the NCAA to make sure that we have toolkits to make sure that women are being included on the decisions. They're selected on committees across all Division One, Two, II, and Three conferences, that policies that are being made and changed, that we understand that. We work with the Committee on Women's Athletics and the Minority Opportunities Interests Committee with the NCAA. So I don't want to say like it's the oversight, but it's definitely a committee that stays connected to what's happening in the NCAA and the impact it has in women in college athletics from the Title IX perspective, for a participation perspective, but also for having the opportunity to have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And where that's missing, this committee will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and do you get involved in women coaches or, or getting greater equity for women coaches in yeah. the NCAA? Yeah, and I think part of the Gender Equity Committee, and I think all of the committees, even when I was on the Inclusion Committee, you know, ensuring that there's representation of more minorities in the athletics community. I mean, part of Mark Emmert a couple years ago, maybe three or four years ago, this is when all these committees really start to rise, is the concern that 
minority women were less than 1% in college athletics and leadership roles. And so, you know, it may grow 1% and then it drops. If Mm -hmm. you lose one and you replace, you know, somebody else, the numbers are not changing. You know, I do think women overall in college athletics has gotten better. I think there's growth, but minority women being in leadership positions has still been a challenge. And so, you know, part of me being able to be on a lot of these committees is, again, amazing opportunity. There's, you know, one African-American, now there's two of us African-American commissioners in the country. I think there's one Asian-American and one Hispanic. And I've just happened to have the experience of working at the NCAA, working at Division One, Two, II, and Three, working on campuses to bring a lot of different experiences and also be able to have a seat at the table and speak amongst those experiences to help influence decisions. And so, you know, it's... um. You know, you're constantly, for me, being a black female and also a black woman and, you know, a commissioner in college athletics. I mean, you're just trying to get people to see and value what everyone brings to the table, regardless of their colors or gender, but be mindful who's sitting at the table because diversity does matter. Inclusion does matter around who's sitting around the table helping to influence change in college athletics or any community. Sure. But sure. we're talking about college athletics here. Right. So how is it meaningful for you to be the first African-American female commissioner? You know, it's, um, I, you know, sometimes it's disappointing because I, I just feel like, you know, there should be more. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> there should be more. You know, it used to feel a little heavy because, again, my role and the opportunities I've had to fast track in my career, the people that I've been around and be able to meet, my opportunities with men's and women's basketball. I mean, I've been around a lot of great influencers and know a lot of great influencers in the business, and there's not a lot of me in that space. And so, you know, I feel, you know, it used to feel a little heavy, Elizabeth, because I felt like, you know, I I can't speak for everybody. Right, right. And it used to be, I worry that if I fail and I don't do well, then I may ruin it for others. And I've released that weight. Uh, I just do the best that I can. I'm, I'm a woman of faith, and I believe that God gave me the opportunity to live out my dream job and that he's going to give me the tools not to fail. There have been some very hard choices as a leader that I've had to make and, uh, and scrutinized or celebrated, you name it. But I just stay focused on the abilities that I have and the influence I have and the circles I have to be in to make change. So being a part of women leaders, again, you know, 20 years ago or 26 years ago, being in this business, never did I think, or 29 years ago, that I think I'd be, you know, a president or a leader in this organization on their board. And here I am. And so for me now, the key is what do you do with that? And how do you make sure that you bring other people along? You make recommendations. Somebody might call me and say, hey, are you available to sit on this or can you do this? I've learned to say no, but let me tell you, why don't you check or let me make a couple of calls because there are other people that we need to bring through the pipeline as well. I think we use each other a lot. You know, you find a couple of good ADs and commissioners and we become the people who stay in it the entire time. And I think we have to do a better job in making sure that we bring others along so that we can create balance of what this flow looks like, you know, the pipeline looks like because there's enough work for all of us to do and there's enough tables for all of us to sit out. We just need to to make sure that we are identifying those individuals to do it. Right. It certainly would be nice when we're not celebrating these kind of firsts. 
Yeah. 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 But you know what? The, I always say this as well. You know, so you're the first. So you hope that when people see it, you won't be the last. Right. You know, like, I don't want to be the last. And I say that all the time. Like, it's cool that I could, you know, bring that type of attention to this conference where it's been male dominated. I look at our Hall of Fame and I'm looking at the list and I'm like, you know, when did we even have the first woman in the Hall of Fame for this conference? I mean, it took, you know, years, 1993, when the first Hall of Fame was back in 1964 to even have a woman in. And I'm just like, you know, this is crazy. (laughs) And then I look at the years that I was there when I started in 2012, my first tournament was in 13. Well, where was I? when 13 and 14, we didn't have any women in, you know? So I feel some kind of shame of embarrassment that I didn't catch that. And when I finally did, I'm like, we will never have another Hall of Fame without a woman in it. You cannot tell me that there are not amazing women in this conference. I have a list of them. And so, you know, being able to identify and being, you know, cautious and intentional about, you know, what's missing around the table, we all have the ability to do that. We can't make excuses. Right. No way. And we'll be right back. This week's episode is sponsored by Sufferfest Beer, founded and led by female athlete Caitlin Landisberg. Waiting to celebrate her finish line moments, Caitlin was searching for a beer that had great flavor without compromising her autoimmune disease. So she took matters into her own hands and spent years developing the beer that she wanted to see in the world. Try Sufferfest Sweet and Balanced Head Start Stout, brewed with coconut water and equator coffee, or the FKT Pale Ale with ingredients like black cherry currant and sea salt. Sufferfest beer is inspired by athletes and adventurers. Definitely check out their website, sufferfestbeer.com, for profiles of the Sufferfest athletes and descriptions of all their beers. How does having a 14-year-old daughter influence what you're doing and sort of the impact that you want to make? Oh, I love her. She is just the most awesome piece of pie ever, sweet tea. (laughs) She encourages me to be better every day, you know, despite past experiences, pain, child upbringing, you name it. I have the opportunity to do something different with her and for her. Uh, My mom was incredible and she was a stay-at-home mom. We were in the military, so we traveled all the time, every three to four years. But my mom was incredible in making sure that I was involved, involved in playing sports or being in art or just allowing me to be creative. I was an only child until I was nine. Simone will always be the only child. And so just trying to make sure that when she sees me, she sees the authenticity in me. However I am on the outside, I am at home. So if I'm kind at home, I'm kind on the outside. If I give here at work, I'm able to give at home. I can see people, I've known people in the business where at one way, you know, they get to a conference and they support women and they support, you know, mentoring and then they get to their own homestead and that's not what they do. And so I always talk to Simone about, you know, be who you are in and outside. Every now and then you have to change a little bit based on the demographic and, you know, maybe the culture and all that other stuff. But at the end of the day, be the core of who you are. And so I'm watching her just navigate in my spaces. She can talk to president. She can talk to student athletes. She sucks it up. Like the confidence that I see in her just really encourages me, you know, to be authentic always, to be honest always, and to be direct in communication, but kind in that. And so she's learning those skills just at school with kids who she would say are sometimes mean or say things and 
she has no problem learning how to use her voice. And sometimes, Elizabeth, before she even does it, same thing that I do, we coach through it. Mm. So she'll tell me something at school and she'll say, how do you think I should? And I'm like, that's brilliant because I do that too. Before I talk to a board member or if there's some controversy, I'll get with my senior leadership or with my coach and just say, hey, how do I present this in a way where it doesn't make them feel or whatever? And we talk about it. I mean, I'm almost 51 and learning this thing, you know, late in life. And so she's 14 and she gets it. And I just adore her ability to navigate in different spaces. That's awesome. And she's a good kid. She's fun. <laughs> You mentioned that you have a coach. What kind of coach? I have a Dream Builders Consulting Group is part of our team. They help with strategic strategy. They help make sure that we stay in line with our mission, with our partners. And they have been really engaged for the last four or five years. Kinston Griffin, who's the CEO here in Charlotte, he does a lot of work externally, but he's been my executive coach since I've been here. Uh, Well, maybe let's say the last five years. And he's really helped me navigate and prioritize and think positive work with my team. He's done some coaching with members of my team. When we've had some issues internally in the past, he's been able to help coach some of my staff in helping them see where their responsibility lies so that we can come together. And it's been great because the people who've been able to work within this environment are here and those who haven't, you know, are not of their own choice or by choice of myself. And so it's been nice to have him. We've changed kind of what he has done over the couple of years because we have some stability. So a lot of what he does now is just helping us with our strategic vision, but also sitting in in some of our consultant meetings with our staff to make sure that we're all staying in line and in step with one another. So it's, it's been nice to yeah. have him a part of our team. That's great. I need one of those. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening today? He's like, don't jump off the bridge. We got this. And I'm like, okay. So it might be a five minute call. And he checks in with me. We used to talk a lot more in the past, but I I really feel like I've got a lot of different tools to really help me manage my day to day. But when I'm feeling overwhelmed, particularly around this time getting to the tournament, he's been real helpful to make sure that he knows what my priorities are and then communicate those to the team to make sure they're in alignment with me. So that's been very, very helpful. I would think particularly since you described what you're doing and you're doing so many different things, I think being able to prioritize and think about what's the most important would be really key. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I I think what I'm also learning that um, not everything is an emergency. You know, and I tell my team, like, you know, we get a call and everybody's jumping around, you know, or a president call. And and I'm just like, everybody just calm down. You know, I think it's because we want to do a good job and we're in a business of service. And so when you get the call, you want to make sure you can help the people who are calling you. But their urgency is not always our urgency. And when it is urgent, let's identify what urgent means. You know, is the building on fire or is somebody about to light a match? Like what what is happening where we need to move in a space, make decisions. And so that's the one thing that Kinston has helped me and our team over the last few years. And every summer when we have our staff retreat or advance in August, you know, we focus on one, creating what is our tagline this year. So this year it's we serve. 
And when we say we serve, that means that we are focused on making sure that our membership and our student athletes are good, but we're going to serve and function, not dysfunction. We read the five dysfunction of an organization and everybody had to read it this summer and we broke it down and identified what our dysfunctions were and all committed that we wanted to work in functional space. But it all started with each of us individually. So I shared authentically where my dysfunction started way back in childhood. Mm -hmm. And so everybody opened up that. And when we did that, then it kind of set the table of us being really, you know, clear and direct with one another, what we needed from each other. And we're a family here. It's fun. We work hard, but we play hard. We laugh hard. We have first Fridays. We go out to dinner. We bowl. We, you know, we've really learned to do. And I got a young staff too, so... They'll make you move around here with technology <laughs> and everything else. And you just fall in because right. you need them and you need them to work effectively and you want them to feel good about the space that they're working in. How did you know that you wanted to do what you're doing? You know, I knew when I left the CIAA the first time. I was here in 97 to 2001, maybe 2003 years. I left here and I went to Norfolk State and did compliance for a year. Then I went to Morgan State for almost two years. And um, when I got back on campus for both of those institutions, I realized that I like working at campus. I miss working around the student athletes from my time coaching at Virginia Union and being an administrator there. But I really love the conference office and being able to serve more than just one community. So when I finally came to my senses, you know, that the NCAA job would be a great opportunity for me. I didn't want to move to Indianapolis. That was my hangup. I love living on the South and the East Coast. But when I went to Indianapolis and I got there, I was like, I'm an organization person. Mm -hmm. I like working in places where I have touch points with more than just one. You know, when you work at the NCAA, you're dealing with an entire membership you know, 400,000 student athletes, you're running championships for very diverse institutions and conferences and sports. I had fencing as a sport. Who would have thought? I don't know anything about fencing, but end up loving fencing. And what I learned is, you know, no matter if you're at an institution or in a conference, you know, it's not really knowing the sport itself, how to play it. It's really about creating that experience and understanding the needs of that sport so those student athletes can play the game that they love the most. And so, you know, once I understood that, and then I was like, you know, CIAA is, it's home for me. It's a place where I had my college career. It's a place where I had the opportunity to work in first. And if I ever had the opportunity to come back and be the commissioner, I'd be so open to it. And so when the opportunity came, I was scared. (laughs) (laughs) I was freaked out. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to apply. I really got to apply. Like, yeah. So let me be very clear. I was very nervous and not sure if I knew I was prepared, but not sure if I was really prepared. I think that's what women do. Like we always think we have to check off all these things about preparation. And I was prepared. I just had to tell my story to demonstrate my preparation. How did you develop your leadership style? And part of that question is sort of where did you develop this confidence and ability to lead? Oh, nobody's ever asked me that question before in that way. That's a great question. So let me start here. When I was growing up, I guess being the only child, my mother would say, 
I could go outside and play and all the kids would come. But when I got tired, I would just go in the house. Like when I was done, I was done. But when I went outside, I could organize to play whatever game, Red Rover, Red Rover, Hopscotch. Like I played hard, ride my bike. And I don't know if that's where it started. But when I start playing organized sports, it's when I left California because they didn't have organized sports. So I cheered, I danced, I ran track for a second. But when I moved back to Colorado and I actually got to run and play on a team, I don't know if it was just an automatic thing that just happened, but I was always the captain. I was always the most responsible. Now, mind you, I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the military. He was a warrant officer. He was over logistics and planning and moving troops and stuff. And so it sounds like it's you know, genetic. It must have. It must be <laughs> genetic. I mean, I always tell him like there's so many qualities that I I know that I got from my dad and the kindness and passion of my mother's heart and put that together with the leadership style of my dad to influence the way that he did. I mean, I think I was just blessed to have those two come together and allow me to just enjoy the ability to lead and guide and mentor people. I wanted to be a psychologist, actually. Hmm. I never thought about being in sports administration until my basketball coach at Hampton said, you know, why don't you think about you know, being in sports management, coaching. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to coach because coaching looks like, you know, the, I know how we were as athletes. So I don't, you know, so I had my own thing about what coaching and I saw how hard my coaches fought for us to have the gym and mm. to get uniform. And to me, I'm like, who wants to do that? And it turned out that I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it was, you know, again, you have coaches, women coaches and men coaches even from high school, I watched my coaches, my volleyball coach, Shirley Diggs, who's in Maryland, who is still a very important part of my life, and my godmother, who both were very influential. I watched them lead. So I guess the other thing, Elizabeth, I had a chance where some instances we don't get to see women who look like us lead. I did. Hmm. I had an African-American volleyball coach who was strong and passionate, my assistant principal who pulled me out of class and said, where do you want to go to college? And outlined all these HBCUs, historically black colleges that could be options. And she put Hampton on the list and she helped me call the school. Wow. And that's incredible. Yeah, and we didn't have internet. So right. I had to go to the library <laughs> and figure out where is Hampton. And my parents sent me. I've never seen the campus ever. I just trusted that she told me the school would be great. The women's coach said, I don't have any more scholarships, but she can walk on. My parents gave me a chance to go. I walked on and then I had a scholarship the next three years I was there. And so I think I've always had this drive and ability to thrive for myself. My mom would tell me, you're making me think of all these things. My mom would tell me, you know, always be able to take care of yourself. It doesn't mean that you can't depend on others, but take care of yourself. Because she grew up at a time where she depended solely on my dad mm -hmm. and she wanted to go to school and didn't have a chance to. She had to stay home, you know, 12 of them. And she was one that stayed and helped take care of my grandfather when he was sick. And so, you know, I think her own way of empowering me as a little girl was powerful for me because she didn't have that chance and wanted me to have that chance. And so 
being able to live out or maybe hear my mom say, you can be whatever you want to be. You know, I was born in 69 and, you know, when did Title IX happen? And whether she knew about it or not, there was some movement Mm -hmm. for her that she saw for me that I could live out. And so, I don't know, it's just interesting because you see a lot of women who don't, um, who are afraid. And there's been times I've been fearful, but never a time that I didn't think I could thrive and and win. I want to win. I want to win in everything. Scrabble, putting a puzzle together. I am competitive at the core. I've learned to be a better loser, though. That's the thing. I didn't lose well. (laughs) Losing felt like evil, you know, like you're not going to make it up, but I've learned to lose. And that what my daughter has showed me how to be a better sports person, mm-hmm. like in loop and losing doesn't mean that you lost. It just means that you get to create better opportunities, you know, for yourself, you get to figure out new strategies to do better the next time. Right. right. And so that that's hard. Cause when somebody says you lost, that feels painful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like what you said about having role models that look like you. I mean, I think it's so interesting if you're just surrounded by leaders who don't look like you, they're acting and talking in a way that is so different and it doesn't seem possible. And so I I think it's really a big deal. It, It is. You know, we talk about that in college athletics at some of these bigger schools. I mean, I think for me working at the CIAA, and I'm sure if if I wanted to leave the conference and go to somewhere else, I could and, and do fine. But I love the cultural relevance of what I see for CIAA. I love to see in how I'm able to help other minority students see somebody of influence and power and, and to support what they want to do. We bring interns and graduate assistants. We try to place them. We try to make sure we give them guidance. I just want to be able to do my best in a space where I know little girls, they see me or women, you know, that are just in awe, which to me, I'm just like, I'm just Jackie, but they're like, no, you're the commissioner. And that means a lot in this community that I work in, but even across the country, like you asked me the question about what is it like being, you know, the first black commissioner? I just see myself as a commissioner. I just want to work, right. have fun, do a great job. But I also know because of where we have been in this society and in this country that to see a woman of color in position is important. So to have women that look like me that I've seen growing up, whether they coached or whether they were a principal or a vice principal or an athletic director, which were few, but in our conference, women were powerful. And so I learned from some of the best women in this CIAA. And without them, I'm not sure if I would have been driven to want to be in college athletics. But Mm -hmm. the men in this conference, you know, when I was playing and even when I was an administrator, They surrounded the women and gave them access and opportunity. And so I knew being able to come back home, as I would say, is that I was already in a community that celebrated women and black women. Mm -hmm. And so it's liberating to be here for me in so many different ways. I noticed that there's a separate tab on the CIA website for senior women administrators. I love that. Yeah, I mean... So so when the senior women administrator whole appointment came out, that was back in 93, 94, whatever that was when I was on college campus. 
it had meaning, but it didn't have meaning. And the term has grown so much. But like I said, here in the CIAA, even without that title, there were very strong women in this conference that had influence on their campus and worked closely with their director of athletics Mm -hmm. and women coaches. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I came back here, you know, the women in this conference were still strong, but I didn't see the same presence as I had seen in the past of the women in the CIAA. And so there has been, I don't want to say an uprising, but really our women have come together and have been, we're making sure that they're getting in leadership programs. We're making sure that they're getting on NCAA committees. I'm making sure that we nominate them for awards. You know, it's an intentional business strategy for me Mm -hmm. to make sure that the women in this conference are visible, that they're at the table, that they have the opportunity to strive and succeed every single day. Now, what happens on their campuses all the time? I don't have the ability except pointed out, which we do, I do, to allow or get permission, you know, or support to allow these women to make sure that they're able to participate with the support of their campuses. And there's never been any pushback. I'm grateful, you know, that we have athletic directors and presidents. I have five women presidents. I don't think in the history of this conference that we've had that many female presidents in a conference for CIAA. I mean, when I had one, I was like, yes. And we had two. I'm like, praise the Lord. Now we got five, almost six. I'm like, hallelujah. And they are amazing. And they want to see the women on their campus thrive as well. I want to finish up talking more about your student athletes. And college athletics right now is in a moment of shifting. So what are you seeing sort of short term and also much further out? Yeah, it is shifting. I don't want to say it keeps me up at night, but I think a lot about what's taking place with this name and image and likeness. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I, Elizabeth, I can't really get my head around all of what's happening on the legislation, national platform, what Congress and all that. But I do think in the community of college athletics, we'll work it out. We always do, right? We might be a little bit behind, but we get caught up because All of our intentions is for student athletes to have great experiences. And part of the experience is driven by revenue. And revenue is driven by visibility. And visibility is driven by student athletes. And without the student athletes, we don't have college athletics. Right, right. And so to balance that, I think the balance, like these student athletes are vocal. They're courageous. They're very different than our era of playing. Like I wanted to play. And if I got a scholarship to play, that's awesome. Now they want to play, but they also want the opportunity to use their play as their platform. Mm -hmm. And not all, you know, and there's a, a select few. I think football and basketball drives a lot of it on the men's side, but you have other sports like gymnasts and swimmers and track that have those opportunities. But I don't think it overplays the percentage of those student athletes who just want to play and love the game and be able to use college sports to get their education or further it in professional sports if they can. So, you know, how we go from here in maintaining the integrity of college sports at all level is complicated. But I, I know that we'll figure it out some way. Division one, two, and three are very different, but the athletes are still the same. They might be bigger and stronger in one division or they have more access, but they're still human beings and they're still individuals who want to play the game. They just make choices of where they want to go. And so how do you balance that so that 
one, they're healthy. You know, we get a lot of student athletes that, including when I played, now there's just more resources to deal with mental health, mental wealth things. You know, I remember hitting my head real hard in practice. I probably had a concussion, but who would have known? I mean, who knew? I mean, I saw stars and I got up and I got back in the lineup. You know, so, you know, these days it doesn't happen in the same way because of the litigation and the lawsuits that are taking place. So I just think, you know, in college athletics, we're being mindful of our responsibility to be better caretakers of the business of college athletics, the legislation of college athletics, but the well-being of our student athletes that we recruit and bring to our campuses and that get to play in our conference. Our conference as a conference are always trying to keep up on the trends and what's going on and how we can be better as a conference. I tell my team, we're not competing with any other conference. You know, let's identify the needs of what we need. If it's mental wellness and dealing with LGBTQ issues and gender equity issues, then let's always make that a part of our DNA. Let's not just bring it up because everybody's talking about it, but let's always be on track of those things that are important to college athletics and bringing our student athletes here. We do a a symposium. This is the fourth year, I think. We bring about 24, sometimes 50 students, and they have like a three-day symposium with just them. And we put them in front of sponsors and executives. They do community service. They have people come speak to them. They get to do leadership development, women's empowerment, diversity and inclusion, stuff that I never got to do. I'm doing that now and have to pay a lot of money to do that. So, you know, I think the exposure that we let them see themselves and see others that care about them, that's our job in college athletics if we want them to play the game at their best, not to use them, whatever that looks like, but to give them the opportunity to be at a platform, to get their education, to learn to be their best and enjoy the game right. that they play. Yeah. Cool. What's your training regime these days or your physical activity these days? Because you used to be an athlete or you are an athlete. Oh, you are an athlete. Man, Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> always an athlete. I tell exactly. a player never loses her game. <laughs> so I'm always ready to play. They laugh at me around here because I'll take a ball. I'll shoot. I'll throw a football. I'm such a Tom girl, whatever you want to call me. I, um, I have to do better, but I, I do eat healthy. Mm-hmm. I drink water. I wake up every morning and I drink at minimum of eight ounces to start my day before I even have coffee. That has been habitual for a very long time. And then I try to drink water throughout the day. I was going to the U.S. Olympic Performance Center. My daughter was going there to train. I was taking her there so that she can get comfortable with her body, um, learn how to work out. And we did that for about a year and a half. So I joined because it was pitiful to sit there and watch her work out (laughs) while I wasn't. And so I started to do that because as you know, the older you get, your metabolism seems like it runs away. And I know when I feel better physically, I feel better mentally. And so I have to do something, whether it's walk or, you know, if I'm up and down my steps, I go at a fast pace or walking from my car. You know, I know I need to do better with getting on my treadmill. So all those goals always happen and I'll do it, but I do eat better. I eat healthy. I watch what I eat. I drink a lot of water and I try to exercise as much. I have all this equipment at home. I just got these, what do you call those power ropes that you have. Oh, right. Those ropes that you, I love them. I wanted them for Christmas and they bought them. They're still in the bag, but I'm going to take them out this weekend. I have weights. So, you know, I get on my treadmill, but I do think mental health is so much, it's so important to us as administrators and particularly women who are always juggling 
a lot of different things and prioritizing our life. And with whether you're married or you have a partner, or you have animals and kids, I mean, it's a lot. And then come to work and try to be 100%. But I always say if my spiritual health is good and my physical health is great, I'm going to be okay. So today is a good day for me because I feel spiritually and physically healthy. And so that's my goal. If I can stay that every single day, the more I can give and make impact here in the office and be a great mom to Simone. Perfect. That's beautiful. Anything else that I didn't get to you that you want to talk about? No. Okay. Elizabeth, you made me like, you made me travel across the country and come back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your thoughtful questions. I appreciate that a lot. Oh, you're so very welcome. It really was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A big thank you to Jackie and all of her staff. I feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to talk to her and hear her ideas for women in business. I hope you like this episode and tell your business pals about Jackie and all the women you discover here. The show notes are just packed with links to things Jackie mentioned. Find those at hearhersports.com. I love hearing your thoughts and comments, so send an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com or call our hotline at 725-BE-BADASS, 725-222-3277. Our stellar design is by Agnes Studio and the music by the band Goldmines. Till next time, bye-bye. If you love the game and you love the conference, if I put it in my backyard with a couple of signs, would you come? They're like, absolutely. <laughs>be simple just put on your shoes and go and yet when you try to learn about how to get better at it especially as you age you're confronted with conflicting advice complicated workouts and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you on the planted runner i'll share exactly how to run faster longer and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.